this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. So my next guest is Mike McCarron, the founder of MSM Transportation, which he sold for 186 million dollars. Now, Mike was in the trucking space where multiples are pretty low, but Mike was able to get six, almost six times EBITDA for his business, which is a pretty fat multiple for a trucking business. I asked him what his biggest mistake was in the sale of the company, and he quickly said it was signing the letter of intent too early. To explain why that's a mistake, here's Mike McCarron. Mike McCarron, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. So tell me about MSM Transportation. You guys were in the trucking business? Well, we were in the trucking business. We were actually uh, what, what, what I guess is referred to as a transportation hybrid. So we were part trucking company, part freight broker. And our focus was moving probably less than truckload product to and from the United States. So... You know, just to put it in context, we moved about it. We did about 120,000 transactions a year, about 60,000 went our own truck, and about 60,000 we part we we gave to, to broker to partner carriers. So the the part of your business where you actually own trucks, you had like physical 18 wheelers that you yes, backed sir. up and people saw. Okay, and then the other part where you're brokering it, you, you found someone with half empty load, and you said, "Look, can you take a few skids and that kind of thing." Well, I guess, you know, I, I guess in the simplest term, yes, our, 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 our and, and sort of that happens. It's a very transactional business. Uh, our, our philosophy was that we partnered with strong players in the area. So, you know, we, we didn't broke to the broker to the weakest link. We broke to strong partners. And, uh, you know, what it really was, was a, a one-stop shopping to and from the United States. So if it didn't serve our trucks, uh, we brokered out to other, other parties. Got it. And so this was a business you started in the early days? I did start. Yeah, I started in uh, in the early 80s after uh, I started at a U- University of Toronto company called Yellow Freight, which is a $2 billion enterprise. And uh, I ended up running their cane operations there for seven years. And basically, it came to a loggerhead, John, when I refused, to tra- trans- I refused to transfer the states. There's just no way I was moving my family to Overland Park, Kansas. And they couldn't get their head around the fact that my family in Toronto was more important than, than the job. So um, I took my Leaf tickets and started my own business. <laughs> Leaf, for those of you who aren't <laughs> listening from Toronto, are obviously the Toronto Maple Leafs, the, the, the hockey club that is uh, the bane of our existence actually right now, Mike. <laughs> we're, we're, we're still riding the Raptor high. So. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So um, tell me about the capital structure of the company. So, so I understand... You know, your title intrigued me because when I think of a of a trucking company, I think of of a guy with a cigar, a coffee cup, and a president. But you called yourself, I think, a managing partner. Tell me about that. Well, it, it's really a play on words. We, um, I had a partner. Uh, 
So, so what actually, what would happen? I had a partner, we started the business and, and, and we were, ironically, we were very different, uh, very different people. He was very, very much on the accounting, the operations, the system side, and he really ran the business on a day-to-day basis. I was more the face of the business. I was more the strategist. I was more the, the big picture, long-term thinker. And, and, and like it and like, you know, I was a Tasmanian devil. I went out and got all these deals and he figured out how to make them work. So ironically, John, we, we weren't social friends. Uh, to this day, we're still not great friends, but, but we were certainly respected business partners. So, you know, the managing partner title didn't mean a lot. My job was really to, to fill the trucks and to build our brand. And how did you finance the growth of the company? Because you guys got it up to 40, 40 plus million in sales. Yeah, almost. We, we got almost to 50. But, you know, interesting, John, our, our brand was actually about managing cash. Um, we never relied on banks. We, 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 my partner was an administrative whiz. So a big part of our strategy and a big part of our administrative growth was managing the cash and you talk about the partner piece of the business. We created a lot of margin uh, and were able to strike really good deals because we paid people very quickly. We were one of the go-to suppliers when it came time to broker freight. And, and to your point ab- about the business, uh, it's dirty. Um, you know, brokerage is a business where a lot of people don't get paid. So we actually, uh, we our secret sauce was really cash management and, and how we paid people. So we were totally self-financed. Of course, we had a line of credit because, you know, I think one of the mistakes small businesses make is, is, is they get money when they need it. And our philosophy is let's get it when we don't need it. So a good example, we got hammered in two, you know, late 2008, early 2009. Um, so we need a line of credit. We needed it sometimes to cover payroll, but we also owned our real estate. And, and you know, that owning real estate, trucking and transportation is larger real estate play. And, and what it does, it gets rid of those personal guarantees. So we were very, very clean administratively. And it, and it really had a lot to do with our competitive advantage, I believe. So help me uh, parse that because when, when you say cash management, I assume you're paying your vendors very slowly in order to maximize your position, but it sounds like you're paying quickly. So no. how are you, how were you maximizing cash? What, what, well, well what, what we're doing is that... <laughs> One of the challenges in trucking is, is billing because, you know, especially the pre-technology days where you've got to get the paperwork back from the customer. So as a rule, truckers and brokers bill slow, upwards 30, 45 days. So when they pay in 30 days, it's, it's you know, it's almost 90 days cycle. So what we did is we were very strict on the billing. We billed the day that the uh, the shipment was delivered, uh, which is a task because there, there's a, there's a lot of variables, extra charges. So by getting our bills in, by offering discounts to customers to pay us quicker, it means that we got our cash in quicker. We then turn to your point, we use that cash to pay carers quicker, which they gave us significant discounts for. And, and even more importantly, on days when there was limited equipment in markets where we didn't have a truck there, and there was limited space for other freight brokers, they tended to take our shipments because they knew that we were going to pay their invoice in 21 days. So what made you and Doug want to sell? Uh, my par- uh, So Doug was actually the person that, that bought our business. Forgive my, me, I was thinking Bob. Yeah, no problem. Bob Murray. Um, you know, ironically, you know, there's a couple things, John. First of all, you know, we sort of embrace this philosophy that good companies aren't, sold, they're bought. 
you know, this idea of, you know, creating an auction and, and, you know, letting the world know you're selling and, and, you know, kind of waving this white flag to your stakeholders. We, we never bought that. We felt that if we could create a really strong brand, a recognizable brand, a brand that stood for something, and more importantly, a business that was sustainable without Bob and my involvement, that it would give us the leverage we needed because uh, you know as well as I do, you, you, it, without the leverage at time of sale, um, you know, you get a call from your doctor, you're forced to sell. It's very hard to sell. So, so we we built a business that was ready to be that was ready to be sold at any time. And what really happened is we, we kind of had an agreement on growth. It was, it was it, you know, it was, wasn't messy at all, but I really want to take advantage of the consolidation, the transportation speed. I, I really felt, uh, John, that uh, once you stop growing, uh, organizations die. They're like, they're like plants. And if you stop watering them, stop feeding them, they start dying. And because what happens is your key employees start looking at this and, and they say, hey, you know, Mike and Bob aren't growing this business anymore how am I going to be successful personally? And they, and they start looking. So, you know, Bob was pretty content with the way the business was. He certainly had much more of a burden than I did from an administrative standpoint. It was wearing him out a little bit. And I wanted to take the, uh, I wanted to take the business to a whole new level, which was take advantage of our cash and take it, take advantage of the aging demographics and transportation space. So at the time we were trying to work through that, Doug Tozer from wheels, banged on her door and, and said he, he, they just went public and uh, he wanted to buy it. So that's when the process started. So there, there was a bit of planning and like, hey, there was just a bit of, of luck from stars aligning at the right time. So Bob, your partner, was a little bit more complacent saying, hey, we built this great company. Let's kind of ride it out. You were saying, no, let's let's go for broke and let's go, let's build it. I, I don't know. I, I don't like the word. I wouldn't say the word complacent, but Growth to him was he was the day to day burden of transportation is overwhelming. And he was one, the type of guy that he was on he was on this thing twenty four seven. I think it just wore him out more than anything. he was just tired. He was tired of it. You know, we had made quite a bit of money, certainly enough money that he didn't have to worry about it. And you know, I you know I, I like building things, so it was just it, it, we we certainly didn't come to loggerheads. We kind of agreed to disagree, and as we were you know trying to determine the next steps, I I was potentially going to buy him out. Uh, there were some other options. Uh, wheels came knocking at our door. So let's talk about wheels. So um, I understand it was kind of a chance encounter that 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 actually triggered the first conversation with Doug. Well, Doug was an old friend of mine. We're actually neighbors. Uh, he lived in the uh, he lives in Central Tobacco like I did, and I was actually at a oddly enough. Uh, meeting with my sons, uh, meeting with a friend of my sons at a coffee shop and Doug happened to walk by and said, call me. And, uh, I called him when I left the coffee shop and we, we, I drove around the block for two hours speaking. And, and, and that really began what turned into be a, a long arduous process, uh, about nine or 10 months, which led to the culmination of the sale. So Doug Tozer being the, the CEO of, of wheels group, which was this, your ultimate acquirer. So you're having this conversation. Um, take us through sort of that nine-month period. I mean, if you think about it now, were there one or two big milestones that that you thought were inflection points in the nine months of negotiation? Well, I think a couple things. You know, I, I think for sure. Um, you know, when I think back and I reflect back on the process, it, it's a really stressful process. And you know, here you are trying to run your business and you're trying to go through due diligence. And, and you know. As much as I th- we've gone through this process educating, you know, you get in this you get this mindset, John, where, where you sign the LOI and the LOI deal- being a letter of intent, letter of intent, and hey, our business is sold. 
And, you know, upon reflecting back, the biggest mistake we made as, as a seller was we signed the letter of intent too early. And what you don't realize is how many, th- two things you don't realize. Number one is that the power, once you sign the LOI, all the power goes to the buyer. And because there's so many other things that have to be negotiated, you know, uh, working capital, non-competes, indemnifications, contracts with key employees. And what I didn't realize was how much work went into this. All this with an eye to the fact that you have to run the business on a day to day. You're worried about you're worried about uh, word leaking out. And you're worried, of course, about, you know, some sort of act of God and, and you losing a big client. You know, like every business, we were pretty much wired that we were getting uh, as much as we tried to diversify and we tried to uh, really focus on customer concentration. We were still getting, you know, 80 percent of our business from our top 10 customers. And, you know, it's a worry because if you lose one of those customers uh, in that due diligence, it really impacts the, the, the sale price. So talk to us about the LOI. So the LOI, what it sounds like a fairly high level, uh, you know, LOI letter of intent that did not include some of the key things that you would have hoped it would have included if you were to do it over again. So what did it include? Well, it really, it just, it just really pretty much, you know, it was about a three page document. It wasn't very complex at all. And really the, the example I would use, John, it's almost like buying a house subject to inspection. The buyer gets it off the market. Uh, we, we dealt with the formula based on a, a multiplier of normalized EBITDA. Uh, we hadn't agreed to the normalization yet. We hadn't agreed to the working capital. Uh, we hadn't agreed to the non-compete. Uh, we, we didn't agree to any contrast key employees. So, you know, in retrospect, you're really agreeing to nothing other than the buyer sort of pulls you off the market and is able to, you know, look at every pocket that you have to see whether they think you can deliver what they think they're buying. And so the letter of intent was, um, you know, we're going to pay you X times normalized EBITDA, but what normalized EBITDA had not yet been calculated? Well, you know, it, it had been calculated very generally, but, you know, you know, it hadn't been really there was just so much negotiation and, you know, and, and you know, the, the other thing that I didn't really spend any time on was wheels was pretty new at this. They hadn't, they hadn't really bought a company, so they weren't very good at the process. And, you know, I'll, I'll go on record to say that they were actually awful. So they really, they didn't use an MA advisor. They didn't use a middleman. So they were trying to use their own people. And, you know, that's almost impossible to do because you're, you know, it's something that ends up being done at the end of the day. Wheels itself was having some challenges. Um, you know, it was done at the end of the day. The due diligence took like nine months. And, you know, in retrospect, I would have waited to sign the LOI till we negotiate all these other factors. Uh, and I also would have uh, made sure that Wheels had definite timelines on due diligence. I would have insisted they hired an advisor because it did get very personal negotiations. It got really ugly, actually. And, you know, that that's difficult because, you know, you, once you do the deal, you still got to integrate it. Uh, you know, we we're very fortunate, John. We wouldn't take earnouts, you know, because we had leverage. We wouldn't take earnouts. We wouldn't agree to work for the company. So we were in a really good position. But saying that, you know, looking at it again, there's, you know, that's one area we would have done differently was, was to really get all the negotiations out of the way, get the LOI done in far more detail and, and 
have a much shorter, quicker, painless due diligence process. And this is such a really important point, listeners, and I want to take a second to just talk directly to you. What Mike is talking about is so important that you get your letter of intent and you get some of these details nailed down because companies even have a strategy of using a very vague letter of intent to do exactly what Mike's saying is get the company off the market, learn about the business and with with no intentions or very loose intentions to actually close on the deal. Um, So you, Mike, would, would say, listen, get the working capital calculation done, figure out the non-competes, deal with the indemnification clauses up front in the LOI state. Oh, without a doubt. The, the, that would, you know, and we were very fortunate because we had leverage. Now, you put that on the other foot where you're in a situation where, you know, you've got that call from your doctor and there's some health things and you have to sell and you don't have leverage. And, and, I'll, and, I'll, and it would have been much, but it'd be much greater negotiate, difficult negotiation because without that leverage and the ability to say no about 500 times, there's no way that I would have been able to monetize this the way they did. And, and, you know, that's the one thing that really resonated with John is this whole ability to, you know, make sure you're, make sure you have a leverage when you do this, because, uh, you know, you can read and, and all the things you say about it, about buying and selling companies. And, and I've done a lot of reading since then. And, and without that leverage, you're really at a disadvantage as a seller. What gave you the leverage? What was it if you could, you know, distill it down to two or three big things. What gave you the negotiation leverage you had? Well, I think what gave us the leverage was the fact that we didn't need to sell. We we, we were, I, I call them the dreaded Ds, death, divorce, uh, disease, or uh, 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 disability, bad, I think is the yeah, other one. Yeah, yeah, disability. So we didn't have any of those. And we had a business that was, was sustainable and scalable without us. As much as I wanted to grow, as much as Bob wanted to sell, we didn't have to. We, we owned our real estate. We were in control. You know, one of the big things is we, we at least in my mind, we had done such a good job um, you know, sustaining the business that I was pretty bored uh, because I didn't have a lot to do because I consciously pulled my, I consciously had done the things ahead of time to make the business not about Mike McCarron, especially being the sales guy in the equation. And, you know, we really had a business that was being bought. So we, and I think that that was a big part of leverage too, is the fact that we weren't selling a business. Some was trying to buy us. Such a good point. So let's talk about these deals because some people, it may be the first time they're hearing things like working capital calculations. So you would have done this up front in negotiation of the LOI stage. So, so explain the working capital calculation, what it is and why it's important to do at the LOI stage. Well, you know, interesting, John, because, you know, when, when I and, and I relay some experience I'm doing doing now is when I talk to when I talk to people about selling their business, they think the cash in the bank is theirs and they think the receivables are theirs. And what they and I didn't realize this at the time as well as that um, there's a certain amount of cash needed to sustain the business, which is your working capital, which is, you know, there's between your liability, your liabilities and the cash you have on hand and. Uh, and you know, it's really, there, there's a bunch of accepted formulas. The one we use was, uh, for every dollar of liability, there had to be 1.2 in working capital. So we were very fortunate. We had extra cash, like millions of dollars in extra cash because we never took the money out. I, and I see where a lot of entrepreneurs make the mistake is just before they go to sell the business, they pull all this cash out, they pay tax on it. And then when you go to sell the business, um, you got to put the cash back um, because the cash or the working capital, which you know, is, is part of the sustaining of the business. 
Got it. Got it. And indemnification, were there any major issues around uh, indemnification, any reps and warranties that... Uh... No, not, not really. Just the biggest thing was just uh, on some pending... Uh, we, we, were, we cleaned up our litigation. We had a couple of these little minor truck accidents. We, we cleaned all that up. And all we had is some, a couple freight claims that uh, we had to deal with. But, but once again, if it's just something else to negotiate that slows the process down because, because the other thing too, is that we were dealing with a public company. We were a private company and there's certain, there's different things that they're looking for to protect the shareholders. So, you know, once again, it, it's not that they're difficult. It's just that it's just something else that drags this thing on. And, and, and you know, especially those that, that are in situations where they have to get earnouts and they have to start working with the people. You get the point where I call deal fatigue starts setting in and, and, and you want to choke the guy who's buying you because, you know, it's just such a stressful time. And, you know, people often ask me about the use of, uh, you know, advisors and, and we use an advisor and I'm happy to say it was Robert Hickey from World Markets. He's a marvelous guy. And, you know, he put largely was a, was a buffer between us and wheels because wheels didn't have one. And I, I use the example of, you know, people often wonder why sports, why athletes have agents. It's because negotiation gets personal. And when it gets personal, it gets very hard to work together after uh, the contract's negotiated. What was, you mentioned it got ugly. What was the most personal issue? Um, geez, that's, that's a good one. Uh, <laughs> there, there became a real tremendous dislike between Bob, Bob, our president and CEO, and their accounting person, and, and and they're both pretty aggressive, and they're both nice guys, but they both have really bad delivery, and it really got to the point where there was a just a real dislike for each other, and frankly, um, it it almost killed the deal. And in fact, it it ended up Doug and myself spending a we have cottages near each other. We had to, we spent one afternoon in a coffee shop in Bracebridge working it out because it was just to the point where uh, we weren't sure if we could integrate it based on this bad blood because Bob Bob had his hand on so much of the day to day. What did you do with the real estate? So you owned the buildings that and, we did. and did you sell those as part of the deal or did you keep those? How did that work? Well, wheels, wheels wanted the real estate initially, and that's where leverage came into play. We didn't want to sell it. We didn't, we didn't want to make it part of the deal because we felt that the real estate would be devalued. So what we did is we sold the company separate, and then we sold the real estate separate of that. We really felt that by you know, putting the two together would be hard to, to keep them apart and... Um, um, so what we did is we part, once again, part of the negotiation, we negotiated, uh, because we were in Bolton wheels was in Mississauga. They actually rented the building office for two years as part, you know, once again, just another thing to negotiate was, was, was the rent. And that was one we couldn't agree on. So we, we ended up agreeing on, they would pay, you know, the, the building was owned by a company that was owned by our wives so that they would pay the same rent that MSM was paying. Got it. Got it. These, these details all get worked out in this nine-month negotiation. So tell me, t- take me up to the actual day where the deal got signed. You'd been negotiating this for nine months. W- w- tell us about the actual day where um, the deal actually was consummated. Well, what happened, like most deals, it, 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 you know, it got down to 
we, we came, we were a certain number apart. And like every deal, it was Doug and myself agreeing to saw it off. Um, I, I can't remember what the number was. It was about a million bucks, I think. So we saw it off. We, and it was, um, it was so about half a million dollars each we gave in. And, you know, interesting enough, there was a, we, uh, we got the deal done. Uh, Wheels was a public company. Um, Wheels was a public company. So we had to make the announcement to our staff after the market closed. And then we went out and had a real big party. And, and ironically, I woke up the next day and nothing had changed really. It was kind of interesting. It was, I'm not gonna say it was a letdown, but, and you know, we, you know, we did well, um, enough wealth that, you know, we could take care of our families. But when we woke up, it was, we had a hell of a party that night. Um, but, but the next morning, you know, it's kind of interesting because the first thing I thought of was like, what's next? <laughs> because I wasn't going to change my lifestyle. You know, you suddenly, you know, you suddenly got all this money. Uh, uh, you know, you, you, you sort of fulfilled your dream and then you got to start winding everything down. And that was a way bigger process. I thought was closing the companies and, and changing the insurance policies and the cell phones. And, um, it, it's still not, we, we're still unwinding some real estate in the state. So, so it's amazing. We were at this for 22 years. It was incredible how much of my life was tied into this. And there's a lot of work to be done once you sell the business to just unwind it. How did you tell the employees? Well, we had told us, see, we took it, we took an interesting tack, John. We told one of our, we were always really upfront with our employees with profitability and what we're doing. It was very transparent company. So we told them, we went against the norm. We told them right from the start what was going on. We told them right from the start, we were transparent. We told them why we believed at the time that Wheels was a better, was a bigger organization. There was bigger opportunities, and we just didn't want to lie to our employees. So, you know, it, it, it was it was it was it was sort of bittersweet. I think um, I, I remember vividly the meeting, and, and there's a lot of tears from a lot of people because we we we'd built a great business. We had a lot of long term employees, but you know, uh, we we. Uh, they weren't surprised because we involved them very, you know, once the LOI was signed, we involved in the process very early because we felt that if they find out and they always find out once the suits start showing up in the lobby, that it was going to be very difficult. How did you choose to help or share with them the proceeds of the sale? Did, did they participate at all? It sounded like they got a great party. <laughs> was there other forms of well, I, employees? What I did was, I'm not sure what, Bob did, but what I did is that I, uh, as part of my deal, I got a million dollars in wheel shares. And, and what I did is I actually gave it to uh, 10, 10 key long-term employers. I gave them $50,000 each uh, in shares as, as sort of my thank you to their loyalty over the years. Uh, I'm not sure what anyone else did, but it was very important for me uh, that uh, I thanked them for, you know, without them, I, we would have never been able to do it. Sure. And, 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 and how was that treated? Um, what was their reaction to that gift? Well, it was, it was really very much appreciated. But what's interesting now is I'm still working the business and I, and I think I'm getting more benefit from that now because I, I think that, you know, it's, uh, you know, I thought it was just a, that everyone does that. It's the right thing to do, but I, I guess a lot of people don't. And it just, you know, once again, it was, it was very much appreciated. I, I don't think that people were surprised because um, it's the way that we ran our business, but I know that the gesture was, was very much appreciated and, um, and, and certainly I'm still getting benefits from that, you know, almost four years removed because all these people are working other places in the, uh, in the industry. Yeah. And so 
it looks like you know reading some of the public disclosures from from Wheels, uh, they acquired the company for eighteen point six million, sixteen point six of cash. Which it looks like you guys were normalized again, subjectively defined. We were about three point three million in EBITDA. So I'm just doing the math. It looked like is about six times. EBITDA? Does that sound about right? Yeah, well, it was about six times. Um, plus, there was there was quite a bit. Of, you know, I think there was about uh, about three million bucks in extra cash as well. So, um, but that yeah, and that was for transportation for the for the size of our business, for the type of operation we had, which is which is a hybrid. That was uh, actually a pretty high multiplier. In fact, most of the analysts I talked to uh, believe they paid too much. Interesting. And do you keep in touch with Doug? Oh, he's a buddy of mine. Yeah, yeah. We play golf together. We remember Lampton. We remember the same golf club, actually. And and does 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 Doug reflect it all? And uh, you know, it's been a few years now. Does he, does he feel like he overpaid, or do, do you get a sense from him as, as to how he feels about the deal? Well, Wheels, interesting enough, and it's all public record. They they actually sold the business um, last April to a company called Radiant Logistics out of Bellevue, Washington. So. Uh, you know, Doug's done well for himself uh, as well. And, you know, I, I think Doug felt that uh, MSM was a very strong brand. And, and, you know, as much as they were only in the venture, they really felt they needed a strong brand to, uh, uh, to, to, to sort of, start, you know, to, to start the platform of growth. They felt they could grow on top of us uh, and use us as a foundation. So I think, you know, you know, the interesting part about overpaying is that, you know, I talked earlier about leverage and where the deal started and where it finished was significantly different based on the fact I was able to say no to Doug so many times because we had, in fact, twice we walked from the deal and because I didn't like what they were offering and they kept coming back. And, you know, that, you know, it's like any negotiation. If you're not prepared to walk, you're asking. And we were prepared to walk. And I think the fact we walked, um, you know, just to put in perspective, the first offer was over half over half of it was stock with a three-year earnout, and I said, "Doug, there's remember you came to me. I didn't come to you. This business is not for sale. You're trying to buy me, and I, you know, I wouldn't agree to them buying our real estate. I wouldn't agree to any earnouts. I wouldn't agree to the stock. I, they wanted me to work. They wanted me to work for them. I wouldn't agree to any of that. So, you know, you know, going back to the first point when we started talking, the leverage that we had created and strategized." Um, really increase the enterprise value in a day, which led to the, to, you know, a lot of people in the industry and, and the people that follow uh, the industry down in, on Bay Street felt that they, they overpaid. At what point did Doug introduce this idea of, of half stock, uh, paying the, you, you know, with stock as opposed to cash? Was that prior to you signing the LOI or after? Oh, it was well before that. Yeah, it would have been, you know, the, you know, so to put in perspective, the, 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 the due diligence is nine months. We were at it about six months before that. And a lot of it was me saying no to, you know, the stock. I just, you know, no disrespect to wheels, but it was it was a venture stock. And, and if you, you know, and I certainly learned a lot more about the venture market, but it's it's not really a market-driven evaluation. We realized that, um, we realized that uh, it was a great company, but, there wasn't a lot of float. So, you know, I, I just wasn't prepared to, uh, to, to, to risk, uh, you know, 22 years and, you know, 33 years of the business and 22 years uh, of work on, on, uh, on wheels brand. And they, they have a great brand. It's a great company, but you know, once again, that's not what, that was not my exit strategy. So, you know, 
we just kept saying no and no and no. And I think Doug, as he started looking, started recognizing the value of our brand and, and they just kept, kept frankly upping the offer. And, you know, this created some risks within his group because um, they felt that Doug was giving in a little bit where really he was just trying, he just kind of fell in love with the deal and, and, and felt that it was something they needed. Hmm. And how did the, the shares of, of wheels group perform the two years after they acquired you guys? Uh, they, they never, when they went public, they never performed well as a company. They, you know, they, they never posted, uh, you know, they kind of played the, they never posted, uh, 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 significant uh, gains in the stock because it, it, it was I, I felt overinflated and then they ran into a situation where cash started getting tight so you know good on Doug to do what he did he, he did everyone well by uh, selling to Radiant uh, which is a U.S. company so um, you know the stock never really did perform very well uh, the good news about the Radiant is it did create some liquidity in the stock so the people that did have it could sell or keep it and I know that uh, a lot of the people kept it and I think they've done pretty well by the Radiant stock. Did you ever figure out how your dollar or share would have performed as a as a, you know, when they were acquired by the new company? I think we. I think you know. Ironically, we probably would have done okay. Um, meaning that when they sold to Radiant, actually, stock got a bit of a bump. Uh, I'm not sure if there was enough liquidity for me to sell the, like the stock that Doug was offering, but. It's just not, you know, the thought of having a lot of my family wealth tied to a business I didn't know a lot about. As much as I like Doug, I like the staff, um, you know, we didn't have to sell. So you start looking at it. Do you want to sell your business and get a, a good chunk of stock or do you just want to hire a professional manager just and just, you know, you know, you know, I'm going to say milk, but just take the cash. So, so you looked at, you know, I looked at, we looked at it very closely and it didn't take us long to realize that we had no interest in, in earnouts or large stock positions. What was the biggest trophy you bought for yourself with the proceeds of the sale of your company? <laughs> the biggest trophy, um, you know what? I, I didn't buy anything to be ironic. I took my family, to, uh, I, I, I told the family that uh, they go wherever we, they want in the world. So we went to, we went on an African safari. And um, I put the money in the bank. I really, you know, I, you know, I recently moved, but that would have been done without the sales. So, you know, it, it had almost, other than the pride of knowing that my kids were taken care of as long as dad didn't make any stupid decisions, it, it had very little impact on my life, ironically, very little impact. I, I, I wasn't impressed at all. And it was just kind of a, you know, MSM was... Unlike a lot of entrepreneurs, I felt I kept a lot of balance, and, and, and it wasn't my life. It was it was a it was a job that I happened to own, but I was the type of dad that was at every hockey game and every basketball game at lunch, and it was kind of a joke around MSM. But I think people respected the fact that I made it very clear that uh, this was not my life. It was just a job that I happened to own. So, uh, you know, ironically, it had very little uh the trip to africa was was a, was a, was mind-boggling but other than that it was uh trying for what i was going to do with the next 10 years of my working life really it's such an interesting point have you, have you read bo burlingham's book finish big no i haven't so it's a great it's a book about this the, the psychological impact in many ways of selling and and, and he taught he does a brilliant job of describing uh, how some entrepreneurs are married to their company, and when they sell, they have terrible bouts of depression. Others, it sounds like in your case, 
uh, where you had other things going on in your life outside of the company that the sale is, is much easier to handle. It sounds like that was important for you guys. Yeah, it was, you know, once again, it wasn't, you know, I think it was a little bit more difficult for Bob. Uh, you know, he, he, uh, he put in way more hours than I did. That's the nature of the beast. Uh, he, uh, he had way, like I never had family members working there. He had a, he had, you know, uh, you know, I don't know, 15, 16 family members. So it was far more personal for him. Uh, he put in way more hours and he was way more tied to it. He socialized more with the people at work where, you know, I, I literally went up to Bolt and did my job when I came home and I had very little, uh, very little interaction with the, you know, I was, I was very active in the business and board. So, you know, my, my family was more the trucking family. I, I was closer more to the trucking industry where Bob was closer to the MSM people. And so, you know, it, you know, other than some some good adulation, some good press, as I said, John, it uh, it had very little bearing on, on my family. Mike McCarron, how do we reach you? Uh, Mike at leftlaneassociates.ca. And just uh, briefly, what is Left Lane Associates for people who might be interested? Uh, Left Lane Associates is a company I founded uh, after. Uh, so what happened is I. I got, uh, I'm not going to say embroiled, but the, the last document that I had agreed to was a non-compete and they tied me up for four years, which at the time seems like nothing. And then realization hits that, um, unless you're going to go buy a subway, uh, subway franchise, you can't work in transportation. So, um, so what happened is, is that when wheels sold to radio that got me out of my non-compete, and what I did was I started a, a left lane associate, which is, which is basically uh, we're growth specialists. We help companies grow uh, through uh, uh, organic growth and through uh, and through M and A. And our focus is on uh, small and mid cap companies. Hence, in the left lane, I'm assuming refers to and mostly is transportation companies. Absolutely, yeah. We focus our niches on absolutely transportation. You know, we don't we don't provide legal advice. We don't provide uh, accounting advice. There's lots of people that do that. Ours is really uh, strategic. Uh, really, what we, we we help companies grow, help them get ready to sell. And and the left lane connotation is left lane is a lane in, that you pass in. So we, we like to think that the work we do with 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 transportation company help helps them pass their competitors. Mike McCarran, thanks for joining us. John, it was a pleasure, my friend. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.